Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Celie Richardson is a clinical psychologist and lecturer in the School of Psychological Science and Centre for Sleep Science at the University of Western Australia. Celie's research primarily focuses on sleep and mental health in young people. In particular, Seeley has worked to develop the evidence base for novel treatments for sleep problems such as delayed sleep-wake phase disorder and insomnia in paediatric populations. Most recently, Seeley has moved into applying these effective sleep treatments to other populations, such as in young people with depression. Sleep and internalising problems such as depression and anxiety commonly co-occur, and Seeley works to elucidate mechanisms linking sleep with emotional problems in adolescents. Ultimately, through her research and clinical practice, Celie aims to optimise sleep and mental health in young people. Welcome, Celie. How are you? Yeah, I'm really great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited because over here in uh, Britain, school has started back and we've got lots of sleepy children and tired parents. So hearing about your research has been uh, incredibly useful. And I'm hoping this interview and highlighting your very recent work uh, as our researcher of the month uh, will be of great benefit both to uh, parents listening and to schools. So how are we doing, Celie, in terms of quality of sleep? Because I know you've even looked at sort of global levels of kind of how many hours uh, our young people are getting um, in terms of sleep. Uh, and tell us a little bit about that and also how potentially the pandemic may have impacted uh, on sleep and family life. Yeah, so if you're interested in whether you're getting enough sleep, there are some fantastic recommendations out there from the National Sleep Foundation. And so for school-aged children, they recommend that school-aged children are getting between 9 to 11 hours of sleep, and they recommend that teens get between 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And so when you look across a number of studies that have been done in that area, you can see a clear trend whereby about from the age of 14 years, most young people are not getting enough sleep, particularly on school nights. And this is a trend that is seen across teenagers worldwide, but in particular, teenagers in America and across Asia seem to be worse off. In terms of the effect of COVID, I guess the impact of COVID on sleep has differed a lot from individual to individual. So for some people, particularly evening type people like teenagers, the stay at home orders offered this opportunity for longer sleep and better quality sleep. While for others, it increased the likelihood of experiencing sleep problems like insomnia. So for example, parents who had extra responsibilities like teaching their kids while also trying to work from home, they might be more likely to experience sleep problems. And indeed, there does seem to be a slight increase in the prevalence of sleep problems during the pandemic. But hopefully now that we're sort of adjusting to this new normal, that starts to drop a little. And, you know, you mentioned sort of puberty as well, you know, at that particular sensitive age from the age of sort of 14, there might be a sort of a decline in getting enough sleep. But there's so much going on in those bodies at that time. It's really, it just seems so complex when you try and iron out all the different reasons why that, you know, they may not be getting enough sleep. So many social factors, physical factors. Yeah, definitely. So there are two key, I guess, physical processes that are involved in when we're awake and when we're asleep. One of them is known as sleep homeostasis. You can think of this as sleep drive. So just like with hunger drive, the longer we go without food, the hungrier we get until we have to eat. 
sleep drive works in the same sort of way. So the longer that we're awake, the higher the increase in sleep drive. And that's really important because we need to have a certain amount of sleepiness in the evening to help us to fall asleep quickly and to stay asleep across the night. But what we see from puberty is that with young people, they tend to build up that sleep drive at a slower rate. So they might not feel physically ready to sleep until later. And at the same time, the second process, our circadian rhythm or our body clock undergoes a lot of change. So when I refer to the body clock, I'm talking about things like our melatonin rhythm. So melatonin helps to promote sleep. It does that partially by cooling the body a little bit. And it's that slight cooling of the body that helps us to feel sleepy, fall asleep and stay asleep across the night. So again, from puberty, we see that these melatonin and core body temperature rhythms tend to drift later by, you know, maybe an hour or two or even longer than that. And this means that teenagers aren't kind of physically ready to sleep until later and they have this physiological drive to sleep in. But of course, we live in this sort of nine to five society and and school hours don't allow teenagers to sleep in line with what their body would want them to do. So often this means that their sleep is being cut short on school nights And it's not until the weekend that they have the opportunity to sleep more in line with their body clock and sort of catch up on that sleep. But it causes this problem that's known as social jet lag, where we have a vast difference between how we're sleeping on weekends compared to weekdays. And it's really not easy to solve because, as you've just suggested, it's beyond our parental control what time school starts. And you've got they're not they'll tell you they're not tired at 11 o'clock at night. And then they're absolutely shattered getting up for the bus at seven. Yeah, a lot of the contributing factors are biological and that's very, very hard to change. So tell us about the impact of sleep deprivation on young people's emotions, physical health, social actions, behavior, learning. And how do we know about sort of, you know, when normal developmental changes are becoming sleep problems? And so what would be the sort of red flags that we should be aware of once we sort of understand the impact of sleep deprivation? Yeah, well, when young people aren't sleeping well, it's much harder for them to regulate their emotions and their behavior, which obviously increases the risk of experiencing a whole host of different mental health problems. And it makes it harder for them to maintain healthy relationships and establish new friendships. But poor sleep can also make it harder to pay attention in class and retain information, which is obviously very important for learning. And sleep problems are also linked to worse school attendance, which obviously has quite an impact on academic achievement. The effects of sleep or poor sleep also extend to physical health, with poor sleep being linked with you know, inadequate diet, being more sedentary and an increased risk for experiencing chronic health conditions. So I guess parents could refer to those sleep duration recommendations that I referred to earlier to look at whether their child is getting enough sleep. More in terms of sleep quality, you might be looking at how long it takes your child to fall asleep or how long they're awake across the night. So if it's regularly taking your child, say, more than 30 minutes to fall asleep at the start of the night or they're spending longer than 30 minutes awake across the night and this problem has been around for a few months, it might be time to seek professional help. So Celie, what are the main things that you wish all parents understood about sleep and its importance? So sleep is the third pillar of health alongside diet and exercise, but I don't think that many people place as much value on sleep as perhaps they do on the other two factors. And so I would just remind parents about the pervasive impact that sleep has on children's well-being and development, and I would urge them to really take sleep seriously. And I just also want to highlight that there is really effective help available. In one of my studies, teenagers and their parents sort of suffered through a sleep problem for on average about three years before they went about seeking help. 
And so I would urge parents to do something about their child's sleep sooner than later. There is really good help out there and sleep treatments can be really effective and you can see improvements in just a few short weeks and that can really sort of transform families' lives. So, Celie, I'm conscious, as many other parents are, of a lecture that you gave on YouTube. I think it was probably about your doctoral work. And it was about one treatment called, I think it was related to light therapy glasses. And it just sound, it sounded so exciting. And a parent got in touch with us because after we said we were going to be interviewing you, and she said she really, really wanted to try and implement that work in her home. And she said, can it be done at home? Does she need to employ a sleep practitioner to help her do that? Which glasses are best to buy as they're quite expensive? And how long do we do it before we get results? So she was really enthused by that piece of work. And it's very exciting that she sort of wants to put it into practice. Yeah, I'm so glad that people are getting access to my research and feeling really inspired by it. So thank you for that. So bright light therapy is a really effective treatment for circadian rhythm sleep disorders. So here, what I mean is when the body clock has drifted so so much later than their sort of ideal sleep timing that they have difficulty falling asleep and difficulty waking up in the morning. And so bright light is one of the most potent time givers for our body clock. And basically bright light shuts down our melatonin sort of production and helps us to increase our core body temperature. So we can manipulate the time that our eyes are exposed to light to either move our body clock earlier or later. So it's certainly possible to try bright light therapy at home, but I guess I would try and recommend going through the process with a trained professional because you can run into some sort of tricky problems, I guess. Often when people hear about bright light therapy, they think, you know, I just need to get my teenager up much earlier and just shine bright light in their eyes and then that will fix the problem. But that can actually make the problem worse because if you get bright light at the wrong time of your circadian rhythm, it can have the opposite effect and actually move the body clock even later. So we use a sort of gradual, gradual approach whereby we get teenagers to sleep in, then expose their eyes to bright light and then gradually move their sleep timing and the time that their eyes are exposed to light earlier by half an hour each day. So that gradual, gradual approach is really, really important so that you don't actually make the sleep problem worse. And that's why I would advocate having sort of a trained health professional alongside. I guess with the different light devices that are available, we are quite lucky in Australia that we do have abundant light. And so natural sunlight is always the best, but I know that that's not the case in every country. And so there are light devices that are available. In my research, I have used the Retimer glasses, which are available and I think can be posted worldwide. There are other sort of light boxes and other portable light devices that are available, but to my knowledge, there isn't really research that has compared the efficacy of the different devices. So I wouldn't really feel comfortable sort of advocating for one over the other, but I would definitely recommend using natural sort of ambient outdoor light where possible. And then you can supplement that with light from these sort of devices when needed. But you would recommend that sort of treatment? Like it seems to be an incredibly efficacious way of approaching what is a very common issue, but it sounds like it's really worth getting that professional guidance on that particular project in family life. It is. I think families benefit from having that sort of intensive support when they're going through the process and we can provide a lot of that sort of scientific rationale behind the the treatment approach. 
The other reason why it's really important to get professional input is because different sleep problems can look very similar. So some of my work has shown similarities between insomnia and delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, which is a circadian rhythm sleep disorder in young people. And so it might look like insomnia and you might treat it like insomnia, but in fact, a treatment like bright light therapy might be more effective. So it's helpful to go to a trained health professional so they can do that differential diagnosis and make sure that they're actually pairing the most effective treatment to the sleep problem that your child is experiencing. Okay, so moving on to your lovely work, we're making you our Tooled Up Researcher of the Month for January because you've recently published a fantastically interesting new paper on examining the impact of parental warmth on teens' sleep. Let's talk about what we mean by parental warmth and what did we already know about particular parenting styles and sleep? Let's just begin there. So parental warmth refers to parents showing their child positive regard, such as love and care through their interactions, involvement and through affirmations. So, for example, showing interest in the child's hobbies and spending time listening to what the child has to say. There are obviously lots of different parenting dimensions and a recent review of the literature found that rule setting, parents' own sleep and family functioning were related to teenage sleep. But in terms of parenting style, parental warmth was the one factor that had the most support for being linked with teen sleep. I guess other parenting styles haven't really been investigated enough to have solid evidence yet. And it sounds sort of, I think everyone can appreciate the value of that sort of warmth and interaction, but when it comes to sleep, it can cause a lot of conflict. You know, every night kind of get to bed, then there's an argument about phones and that sort of emotional arousal probably also is a contributing factor in the difficulty of falling to sleep. So we're all sort of, you know, in battle with one another often in these issues. So they might be very warm outside of those interactions at that particular time. But you're saying it's a good investment to try and get along better, to take an interest in them beyond those particular moments where it's just before bed. Yeah, well, definitely in this study, we were looking at parental warmth more broadly. So the sorts of questions that we were asking were not related to sleep. It was related to parental warmth more broadly. But certainly I can empathize that, particularly if you have a teenager who's not sleeping well, that that sort of increases pressure on the whole family and can definitely create a lot of conflict. So you tell us in the paper that parents, which is very encouraging, are ideally placed and highly motivated to optimize adolescent sleep. That sounds very encouraging. Tell us about the, this actual study in a little bit more detail. What did you set out to look at and what did you find? Yeah, well, like I've said, poor sleep in teenagers is highly prevalent. So a lot of my research aims to investigate risk and protective factors for poor sleep that we can actually modify to help solve that problem. So in this particular study, I wanted to extend upon a lot of cross-sectional research or findings that parental warmth is associated with better adolescent sleep. And I actually wanted to test whether parental warmth actually protects teen sleep longitudinally over time, because this is a more robust way of testing that association. And I also wanted to look at why parental warmth and teen sleep are linked. So I picked sleep hygiene as a mechanism to investigate. Sleep hygiene behaviors are these types of behaviors that promote good sleep, like having a regular sleep routine, winding down before bed, not having caffeine, having a you know quiet, comfortable, dark space to sleep in. And I predicted that parents who were more warm in their sort of interactions, they would better encourage teens to engage in these sleep hygiene behaviors, which would lead to better sleep subsequently. 
So to answer this question, I use some data from the RAW project, which is one of the richest data sets of teenage socio-emotional development worldwide. We have a cohort of about 500 teenagers who we follow up every year since they were 11 years old. So we've got about six years worth of data now. And indeed, we found that greater parental warmth led to teenagers engaging in more of these sleep hygiene behaviours over time, which in turn led to better sleep. So this is less evening orientation, gaining more sleep and having less daytime sleepiness. But the results came out only for the child-reported models, so where children were reporting on their perceived parental warmth, not when parents were reporting on their level of warmth. So you make some interesting findings into what's called the bi-directional relationship between sleep and parental warmth, about how poor sleep in teens, you know, it sort of feeds into one another because you can imagine those arguments when they have, they wake up like a bear with a sore head. And then that causes another argument and sets the tone for the day. So tell us a little bit about that bi-directional relationship that's so interesting. Yeah, well, this was one of the more interesting findings to come out of the study. So not only did parental warmth lead to better sleep, but young people who had worse sleep tended to perceive less warmth from their parents over time. So certainly poor sleep can put pressure on families and it can lead to a lot more conflicts, such as over bedtimes and wake-up times, particularly on school days. So it makes sense that poor sleep can actually degrade the quality of that parent-child relationship over time. Parenting is a dynamic sort of back and forth process after all. And your paper states that parents should approach interactions with their teenager about sleep and sleep-related behaviours in a loving and caring way, not in an authoritarian way. But anyone listening to this will go, oh, please, Celie, give us some advice on the actual thing to say. You know, what does that look like in real life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so authoritarian parenting is characterized more by this sort of one-way communication style dictated by the parent, where the parent has strict rules and punishments, whereas warm parenting is characterized more by collaboration and, you know, solving problems together while still having clear expectations. But communication's open and there are natural consequences. So one example of how authoritarian parenting could be unhelpful is around negotiating bedtimes. Many parents set an early bedtime for their child, and generally this is a good thing and it is protective. But for teenagers, as their body clock drifts later, this being sent to bed early often means that some teenagers are lying awake in bed for hours on end, and this can actually contribute to sleep problems like insomnia. So instead, I guess a warm approach would be to discuss what the teenager thinks is an appropriate bedtime for them, acknowledging what the natural consequences on daytime sleepiness the next day might be. And then maybe experimenting together for a period of time until an ideal sleep schedule is achieved and sort of reviewing this regularly would be important. I guess parents could also familiarize themselves with these different sleep hygiene strategies and work with teenagers to see which of these that they'd like to try out and building up the number of strategies over time and providing encouragement and that sort of positive reinforcement during that process would be really important as well. So it was almost like a little mini research project in parenting with your child in collaboration because you both want to feel good. You know, the outcome is feeling good and not feeling awful in the morning and just sort of finding, I always think of it as a biting point, like when you're driving, like the optimal time to go to bed, to fall asleep quickly, to have a good night's sleep, even if you have to get up for the bus at 7am, that at least you've had that solid time. Exactly. It's just sort of about being on the same team as well to try and you're both in it to try and achieve the same outcome. So you just need to sort of work together. And you talk a lot about sleep hygiene. Can we just sort of dwell on that a little bit? 
what does the ideal optimal bedroom you know feel and look like for that teenager in terms of sleep hygiene would it have tech in it even if it's off switched off phones is it okay to listen to apps as they're falling asleep music what would you advise well, I guess in terms of the sort of sleep hygiene strategies, first up, a lot can be said for having a sleep routine and having regular sleep times, even on weekends, as this helps to regulate the body clock and the buildup of sleep pressure, which I've spoken about earlier. More broadly, I guess these strategies aim for the body to help become physically and mentally prepared for sleep. So kind of winding down physical activity before bed. And perhaps parents can help their teenagers to regulate their emotions before bed. I guess for a lot of teenagers, they're experiencing lots of new things and it's not until their head hits the pillow when it's dark and quiet, they start to kind of process the day and this can interfere with sleep. So parents could ideally help their teenager to do that processing earlier and help them to uh, sort of regulate their emotions and, and problem solve around anything that has come up earlier well before bed. Technology is a bit of a tricky one. There is a relationship between technology and sleep, definitely, but this really depends on the type of technology, the time that it's used, how long they're using it for, and the sort of content that the teenager is engaging with. And we're sort of realizing now that there is this bi-directional relationship as well between um, technology and sleep. So not only does technology in some cases affect sleep, how a teenager is sleeping can affect their technology use of over time. So one of my other studies showed that teenagers who slept more poorly actually increased their tech use over time. And perhaps this is actually a coping strategy for some teenagers. So I think I would encourage around technology, I would encourage parents again to be really collaborative to kind of work out what the function of that technology use is. Is it a coping strategy or is it something that, you know, sort of amps the teenager up a bit too much physically or cognitively before bed and then sort of coming up with some some rules and, and limits around technology once you kind of better understand the function that is playing for the teenager. Well, this reminds me of an argument I had with my 13-year-old the other night who just wanted to listen to a song before he went to bed on our digital device in the room. And he wanted to listen to sort of Led Zeppelin, you know, rock song. And I thought to my, I said, no, that's far too energetic for this time of night. But he disagreed and thought it would help. So who was right in that argument, do you think, <laughs> You know, I don't want to get between the two of you too much. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, quite different individual to individual, what one person can find really sort of, you know, amped up and that sort of thing, another person can find quite relaxing. And so it sounds like you're having, you know, a good conversation around that and setting some some good limits. But yeah, it's just sort of about being collaborative and trying to, I guess, work with him to find out what's going to be best for his sleep. So for all these lovely teachers in schools who are receiving our sleep deprived children in the morning, schools are very, very keen, I know, to help young people learn about the importance of sleep. We might even nudge schools to help young people, you know, encourage them to listen to this podcast. What advice do you have for schools in sort of in terms of optimal education around these topics with teenagers? Yeah, well, there are a lot of school-based sleep interventions that are showing promise, but largely we see that these programs do increase sleep knowledge without really leading to reliable improvements in sleep behaviours. So ultimately, I do hope that the sort of research that I'm doing will help to make these programs more effective over time. I guess when working with teenagers directly, um, results from this study highlight the importance of encouraging the implementation of those sort of uh, sleep hygiene strategies. And I guess teachers and, and people at schools know these young people the best and, and they can kind of think about 
maybe interesting ways to try and motivate adolescents to actually make these sleep-related changes themselves. But perhaps they could have this two-pronged approach where that they also are working with parents alongside teenagers to improve their sleep by encouraging them to, you know, have more warm and sort of collaborative interactions around setting rules around sleep. And this might improve adolescent sleep indirectly. Okay, just a few parent questions for you, which I'm sure you'll enjoy and maybe have heard before, before we finish. Is there any evidence to suggest the temperature in a room has an impact on teen sleep? My children are always saying they sleep better when it's cold. Yeah, so like I said, our body needs to have this like cooling right before bed so that that helps them to feel sleepier and that drop in our core body temperature helps us to stay asleep across the night as well. So definitely if the room is too warm, that can interfere with the onset of sleep and people might sort of wake up more during the night. So that makes sense that, you know, having a cooler room helps some young people to sleep better. And also having a bath before bed, presumably that would raise the body temperature and potentially inhibit sleep. Yes, it can have that effect. I guess if you're spending long enough in the bath and the water is warm enough, then it can have the effect of increasing your core body temperature. So ideally, although baths can be very relaxing and that can be a nice wind down activity, from a physiological standpoint, you don't want that hot bath to be too close to bedtime because you need enough time for that cooling of the body. So yeah, maybe shifting that kind of relaxing bath earlier on in the bedtime routine would be a good step. Earlier on, you mentioned sort of lying in at the weekend, but it was my sort of understanding that as tempting as it is to let them sleep until 12 o'clock, as you've mentioned, it's not ideal because you end up with a hangover for the next week. Exactly. So sleeping in means that your eyes are not exposed to light. And so it has the effect of, I guess, your body clock potentially drifting even later. And as you sleep in, it means that you have less daytime hours to kind of build up that sleep pressure as well. So it can mean that when you come time to Sunday night to get into bed before school the next day, you're just not ready for sleep. So one of the most important things that you can do for improving your teen sleep is to try and minimize those weekend sleep-ins as much as possible, ideally not sleeping in sort of any longer than two hours later than a sort of regular school day wake-up time. And presumably, are you totally against, I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, sleepovers? Because sleepovers, which children love, are just sleep deprivation parties as far as I'm concerned. I can't bear them because of the hangover into the next week, but I'm a bit of a grump about sleepovers. What's your sort of personal view of them? (laughs) I guess um, as a young person, they're incredibly fun. And so I've got fond memories of sleepovers when I was young, but definitely from a sleep perspective, it's not the best thing that you could be doing for your sleep health. Yeah, obviously you could be catching up for sleep for quite a while after that sleepover and it can have the effect of further delaying the body clock and things like that. So perhaps keeping them to a minimum, particularly during the school term and maybe keeping them as a bit of a special treat during school holidays might be a better approach. Okay, and Celie, what exciting projects are you working on currently? Because you've published that paper, which we're going to promote on our website and tell everyone about. But what else are you doing that you're excited about? Yeah, so like I said, the RAW project is one of the sort of richest data sets on teenage socio-emotional development. And so I'm working on another paper using that data set at the moment. I'm really interested in the relationship between sleep and mental health in young people because sleep is such a robust risk factor for the onset of mental health problems in this age group. And what I'm looking at here is the role of repetitive negative thinking as a mechanism linking the two. 
So like I said, a lot of teenagers have difficulty falling asleep and when it's dark and quiet and you're just waiting until you can fall asleep, you can't help often but have these sort of repetitive negative thoughts, thinking about what didn't go so well during the day and worrying about what you have to do the next day. And that repetitive negative thinking is a really robust risk factor for the onset of mental health problems. And so I'm aiming to test this sort of model longitudinally and looking at whether sleep and repetitive negative thinking are risk factors for the onset of things like depression, anxiety and eating disorder pathology. But I'm also a clinical psychologist and a lot of the work that I do is sort of treatment trials. So I'm also running a randomized control trial at the moment to look at whether adding sleep treatment, bright light therapy to the treatment of adolescent depression improves outcomes for those young people, both in the short and long term. So yeah, if anyone listening has a teenager who might be experiencing depression and sleep problems in our sort of Perth, Australia, I would be very happy to have them sent my way. Lovely. Well, listen, thank you so much for all the incredibly valuable work that you do that the world appreciates and needs. And we're really excited to share your work over here in Britain. And Europe. So thank you so much for your time, Celie. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.